is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life. Become an agent for other intelligences. And begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello everyone, this is Alexa and you're listening to Life Worlds. Today on the show, we're joined by two guests who have been trailblazing the way for the global rewilding movement. We have Christine Tompkins, ex-CEO of Patagonia, who together with her late husband, Doug Tompkins, managed to protect over 14 million acres of wildlands across Latin America and 30 million acres of marine areas. This power couple are considered to be some of the most successful national park-oriented philanthropists in history. Christine is also chair of the National Geographic Society's Last Wild Places campaign and was the first conservationist to be awarded the Carnegie Medal of Philanthropy. Then we've got Derek Gao, infamous amongst rewilding circles for his leadership in reintroducing the beaver back into European landscapes. Through Derek and his delightfully funny and informative book, Bringing Back the Beaver, I've become somewhat obsessed with beavers, <laughs> but more on that in just a minute. First, let's start with the basics. What is rewilding? And why should you care about it? Rewilding is a very particular form of restoration ecology, which is a pretty fancy way of saying bringing nature back into a state of balance. Rewilding does some things that other forms of restoration just don't do. Most often, it involves reintroducing the missing parts and processes of an ecosystem, such as keystone or native species, carnivores, herbivores, Imagine jaguars, bisons, wildcats, water voles, shrews, aurochs, things big and large. Those are just some of the friends who can be present when land is being rewilded. And when these animals return to somewhere they may not have been for hundreds of years, they do what they like to do best. They are themselves and they begin to chomp, munch, trample, poop, eat. And this means that they begin spreading seeds, drawing down carbon, changing the vegetation of riverbanks, recreating and restoring all kinds of invisible relationships and behaviors that enable life to exist. Some animals are architects, like the beaver, who build dams that make nests for yet more species. And some animals actually need our architects to remove obstructions to allow fish and rivers to flow once more. Honestly, once I got into it, I found rewilding to be like the portal of Narnia that brought me into the life worlds of so many species because it began to illuminate how each different part is magnificently affecting the whole. It stretches our minds, and it asks us to expand our empathy towards other species, to expand our ability to share, because we need to share our landscapes and allow these other lives back into their original homelands. So there you have it. Rewilding is about letting nature do its thing, and enabling the Earth's natural rhythms to express and ebb and flow, and about us humans learning to cohabitate with other forms of life. With that as an intro, let's kick off with Derek Gao. I think you'll appreciate his fast-paced, no-nonsense take on just what needs to happen to scale up rewilding 
and what might stand in the way. Our conversation ranges from his delightful descriptions of restored landscapes to Elizabethan fat bishops, prehistoric cattle, wolf gods, and water voles that gorgonzola riverbanks. As always, the Life Rolls website has tons of resources to go down the rewilding rabbit hole. And if you enjoy these abbreviated episodes, you can always tune into the full hours found right beside wherever you found us here. For now, here is Derek Gow. On this podcast, we focus a lot on how to reevaluate the human relationship with other species. And we speak with a lot of our guests about this fundamental fact that if we try and restore land without restoring relationship, we're not going to get very far in the long term. And so knowing about the work that you do in the world uh, in rewilding and restoring land and reintroducing species to ecosystems and having worked a little bit in that space myself, it really seems that the most common obstacle is less the technicalities, although those parts are fascinating and tricky, but what happens in here, right? Like inside the human head. So to kick it off, I really want to ask you about this, these obstacles and in your work, what is it that you keep butting up against that causes the frustration and, and the uh, the inertia that you see in the world? Yes, well, I mean, there's a friend of mine in Germany who's even bigger and fatter and more beardy than I am. And he will tell you with a German accent that managing beavers has nothing to do with the beavers themselves. It has everything to do with people. You know, people ask what it is in their heads that stops them. And, you know, honestly... It's a concoction of all things. It's history. It's tradition. It's the idea for some people that we have, you know, in Britain, we have lost this halcyon, Edwardian, Victorian shooting, fishing, hunting countryside. And that is the way that it should be. And that what we should do with every fiber in our being is strive to get back to that because that's an in inverted commas natural and everything else is wrong. The idea for many people, especially when it comes to animals like the beaver or the wolf or whatever else, that we are going to live alongside anything that takes anything from us is just unacceptable. It's a farming, settler, elemental mindset, and it's very difficult to counteract. It's so deeply ingrained that having conversations with people who've reached that kind of mindset later in life, or even people in their teens who are heading strongly towards it, is next to impossible. They can't understand it. I mean, I used to farm a lot of sheep, and we were lambing sheep efficiently commercially. You know, we'd lose about 10% of the lambs that those sheep produced. And that would just be things that were, you know, born in a placental bag, and they would never breathe, or there would be all manner of other complications. And as you filled the bags outside the lambing sheds with all these dead lambs, you thought nothing of it. You know, the knacker man comes, he lifts the bag, you lift the bag on with a tractor, they go away, they're burnt, you get a bill for them being burnt. And yet, you know, if we'd left those lambs out in the pasture to feed things and and, and you come down in the morning when you're tired and you've worked ridiculous hours anyway and you had an eagle sitting on the lamb pulling its face off, then the first reaction of most people is to go and reach for a gun. And yet it's just crazy. All, all these surpluses that you see in life, the wildebeest crossing the Serengeti, the Saiga in the Alta, you know, in the in Siberia on their, you know, great life treks, 
they produce great numbers of young or great opportunity, which predators have always used. And of course, sheep lambing artificially in high numbers for those predators is exactly the same thing. And yet we just don't seem to be able to rationalize or realize that. And we always view it you know, with a hostility based on the idea it's taken something from me and that that is unacceptable. That kind of absurd idea of, okay, this form of life is taking something from me. It's also deeply hypocritical because the land used to belong to all these creatures before we turned up. And if anything, we took the land from them, we killed them off. And then we're in a slow extinction process and rapidly speeding up extinction process ourselves because of it. And so that that feeling of ownership over land, have your thought to trace it back? Like this land is mine, this pasture is mine. You know, I think in the, in the UK and in Europe, um, I'm from Switzerland, you had the enclosures right in the 12th century and you had this idea that land was no longer commonly held. We wouldn't be able to move across the land in more organic ways. But this notion of my stream, my forest, my whatever it may be, uh, is obviously at the core of what we're also being told to consume and to buy into as, as a global economy. So I resonate with what you're saying. Like it's it's history, it's tradition, but it's also everything that we're told from the moment we're born to want and to strive towards, which is individual ownership. How have you changed minds? You know, you've got interesting examples in your books. <laughs> no, sure, I don't. If I have changed minds, I mean, you meet a lot of people and there are a lot of people who say this is great and there are a few who say it's bad, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have no idea as to whether I'm changing minds or not. I'm saying what I think and, and yeah. I'm not even sure that, you know, as you struggle to come to terms with your own understanding of issues like this, that it's right or wrong. But I mean, this whole thing of everything being mine is, it's it's my sheep, my pheasant, the beaver's cutting down my tree, it's eating my roses, it's all gnawed a hole through my gate, everything is mine. And, you know, you look at a world now where 95% of the living biomass of the planet is us and our domestic animals. And... (laughs) You know, regardless of the wonderful wildlife films you see on your TV on a Sunday night, you know, you actually go into the wider environment, you know, which isn't a special nature reserve or something that's a, a relic landscape that people have preserved. And you just go and see what's there. And, and I mean, I do plenty of that. And, and it's just shocking. I mean, you so seldom see anything of any ecological value. Normally what you're looking at are landscapes that are entirely played out. They are flayed to death, you know, by sheep or by, you know, with maize production, with the soils running off into the water courses, the toxic silts underlying the rocks um, that are in the water itself, no life, no insects, deer on one side, sheep on the other. You're just looking at a landscape that's an elemental breakdown. It's as near, okay, there may be some small birds, you know, flitting through the trees, but even those have declined by millions over the course of the the last few decades. It's kind of hard to see how you get much lower for some of these environments. And of course, once you've understood that, then you have to start to think about what's involved in rebuilding them. <laughs> I think, you know, without wishing to sound unduly gloomy on a sunny day, you know, what you begin to realize is that the destruction has been very easy, but the actual putting things back together again is going to be bloody hard, and it's not something we're well equipped for, either from a psychological perspective or even in terms of ability or, or, or financial resource. We make a big fuss about this sort of thing and we pass 
laws sometimes, but you know, in the end, when you look at all the international treaties and you look at where you are a decade after the treaty's been signed, then things are not getting any better. Yeah, I think on that psychological perspective, you know, this thing called the shifting baseline syndrome, right? Where yeah. like, if you never knew what an ecosystem was in more of its vivacity and, and expression, then you definitely will look at a tree farm and be like, wow, look at that beautiful forest. And yeah. I think I was guilty of that growing up. And then I, I had the chance to spend time in some old growth ecosystems and was just like, holy shit, we are so far from where we need to be. And kind of what has been seen cannot be unseen. And so I think about that a lot. Like, how do we get especially younger people, because those who are entrenched in their ways, you know, at older, I think are a little bit harder to, to change. But how do we get young people to see, to develop the sensitivity, to not see a landscape as it is? Um, but there was this part in your book that I really loved in Bring Back Beaver, where you spoke about surveying the ruin of a landscape. And you had this part that I'll just quote, because it was so, so good. You said, you interpreted the landscape and recognized beneath the veneer of modern human activity, the ghosts of ancient beaver dams and the silted pans that they had left behind. And there was another part where he spoke about finding these empty nests of the water voles. And for me, that seems like a really interesting place to start. It's how do you overlay what the landscape was to where it is today and show people that gap and train them in the way that you managed to do, which was like, I don't see a landscape, I see ghosts. I see the shapes of things that were, things that could be, but definitely not the things that are. Like that seems like a really important skill to hone in young people as they're sort of growing up in these impoverished plains and moors. Well, you can talk to young people. And I mean, I've talked many times to many audiences of young people. I used to work in environmental education and I've I met many and I'm not sure, well, I mean... The older you get, the more you realize, actually, that you don't know as much as you thought you did. But you certainly become much more insightful, I think, in time. Um, showing people these things is quite possible. There are many different forms of life that mark the earth with their presence. And some of those markings, you know, for example, the kind of wonderful paths and flat booming platforms that kakapo parrots, you know, used to make in New Zealand before they were forced out of their mainland habitats by a whole range of different introduced predatory species, you know, still endure. And water voles are kind of like the same. The way they sculpt bank sides with their little feeding platforms and, and their burrows and, and their runs from the, the head of the river bank to the base, these things last for, okay, do they last for centuries? Well, maybe, maybe not. But I mean, they certainly last for many decades after the animal's gone and are quite widely visible in many parts of Britain, if you just care to look. I mean, the same with the beaver dams. Yeah, that beaver dam complex up on the Barbrook, I mean, it was quite something. I and mean, you look at it from the air and you look at where the water just slews backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And then you look at a modern beaver dam complex and you can see exactly the same pattern with, with the big difference being that, of course, the modern dam complexes have trees, whereas that moor above Sheffield has no trees anymore because the trees were cut down by us in the Bronze Age and then possibly willow regrew at some stage when the Saxons were here. And then, you know, there's been this process of wax and wane and wax and wanes, our fortunes failing and the fortunes of animals for a time recovering. But in the end, we got them all because, you know, we became the dominant land force on this island. And, you know, I do think it's absolutely the case. If you want to see, you know, what an end game looks like in the Northern Hemisphere, then you just come to Britain where we're worrying about 
tiny insects and bugs and hoverflies and lichen because all the big creatures have gone. And the big creatures are the things that, through their natural activities, create living space for the small ones. And without, you know, it's like having an engine and looking at a part of the engine and not really understanding that, you know, even if this, I don't know, the, this air filter duct is important in its own right to ensure that, you know, you've got some sort of process of heating or cooling in your car, that it doesn't work without the bloody engine. It's as simple as that. And, and what we've lost is the kind of pilot light and the boiler. Everything's still there in bits and fragments, but it's not working because the thing that drives it has gone. And that's really where the beaver came from, is that, you know, it's the animal. If you put it in a riparian landscape, it will, you know, fell the trees, create open sunny habitats, create pools, create complicated canals, um, allow the vegetation to flourish again, to produce its pollens and rhizomes and tubers that so many other species depend upon. But then the next challenge with that is that you realise that some of these species, like the water vole, which lived alongside them for 40 million years, and which in its own right cuts myriads of holes, and by doing so, Gorgonzola's the beaver banks, it just isn't there. It's gone. It's gone. And it's the basis of the food chain. It's the basis of slowing the flow of water as well, because it complicates the bankings. It's the, the thing that diversifies the plant communities still further and extends the root systems by feeding on tidally on them. And all those functions, this little thing brought, finish when the little thing's gone. And I'm quite, quite sure that we're going to find as we continue this journey that there are going to be more and more creatures like this that either because of their absence or their presence or their compromise in certain environments just diminish still further the ability of other life to survive. So it's a complicated process. But then the good thing is with the return of the beaver, you start the function again. The light goes back on, the engine starts to tick over, ducks come back in, newts return to breed. You know, your density of water beetles goes up by 400%. And every other guild of life that is still there is able to look at these green oases reforming. And if they can slither, fly, crawl or trot, return to find them. You know, in, in landscapes that have been very badly abused by us. So if you're a person of any intelligence, there's no problem about understanding that. And to come back to your initial question about what it is in people's heads that refutes this truth, the answer is I don't know. I mean, clever people come up with excuses as to why this is unacceptable, why, you know, their liking should be more important than a, a living, breathing, gurking, croaking, quacking world. And I don't know why they do that. I have no idea. It's not my mindset. It's something that's small and peculiar and that idolizes a hoverfly or a fish or a, or a like and whatever. And, and those are the guys that are supposed to be on side and are supposed to be allies when it comes to species recovery. You know, you, the, the farmers, you'd expect nothing other than opposition from. I saw that example on your Twitter feed this morning, and it's a group that I also respect immensely for some of their work. And I was actually very surprised to see that. Um Mm. Also because the lichen need the trees to be on and if the ecosystem's dying and overgrazed and, you know, it's just, it's seems like a bit of a very myopic way of seeing an ecosystem for people who work with, with ecosystems. Well, I think it may be that the trees for life have gone along with other organizations who are infinitely less liberal than they are. But the problem is that, 
you know, I've just had a week where we've, we've sat down with the Natural England to discuss how we move forward with beavers. And, and really, the return of the beaver is a fairly binary thing. It's like a colleague of mine from Denmark once explained, when it comes to the return of the wolf in, in Denmark, the wolf is a creature that divides the water. You are either for it or you are against it. And there isn't a middle ground. And therefore, you come at times to an elemental human struggle where you say it is either going to be one way or it's going to be the other. And if you believe firmly that your way is the correct way, then you have to fight for that. There will be some talking with people who are reasonable and there will be education and there will be persuasion, but there will be some people who oppose to the last cell in their body the course of action that you advocate and they will do everything they can, literally everything they can, to ensure it does not happen. And that's just the reality. And therefore, trying to create something that's entirely inclusive that brings them in where we all sit down and have a cup of green tea and a nice wee chat and then move on, it's not going to be that way. And you might as well realise that at the beginning. Even though I think one would prefer to see it another way, the lucidity of what you're saying and, and the practicality, I think, is really important because we can't waste more time trying to create these dialogues if at the end of the day, I mean, that was what was so striking about your book was time and time again, you got so close and then someone, some logger-headed fellow or, or female just sort of blocked these years and years and years of efforts. And I just don't know how you did it, to be quite honest. You are as perseverant as the beaver. And I have to say, I finished reading the book. I've spent some time with beavers because I lived up in British Columbia for a while. I um, spent a little bit more time with otters who also are just absolutely wondrous creatures. But I binge watched for about two and a half hours beaver videos on YouTube. <laughs> one video led to another video, led to another video. And for anyone who's listening, I mean, just please just go to YouTube and start watching beaver videos mm. and how they terraform. And there was this one little fellow who like spent, I don't know, two months, you know, he left his clan and was like, okay, I'm going to go on my own now. I'm trained. I'm going to make my own family. And he starts building his dam. And then, you know, a, a flood surge comes and the whole thing's wiped away. And he's just like, all right, I'm just going to get right back to it. And when I was reading your book, I was just thinking how your perseverance really mirrored that of the beaver. And I'm sure you've been told that before, but I thought it was incredibly interesting. Oh yeah, on the subject of the introduction of large predators, you know, if people resisted the beaver because of their fields and, and all of these other kinds of things, the large predators are more tricky, right? The wolves, the wildcats, because they're also a direct threat to our hegemony or our perceived hegemony and something that could attack us or eat us, even though they don't really want to eat us or attack us, is something that we've just been so over-domesticated to be terrorized of and, and to, to shutter that away at all cost. Um, there's an example I really liked, which was I spoke with Christine Tompkins, who's a friend, and she was sharing about how they reintroduced the jaguar in South America. And before reintroducing the jaguar, they had to do a whole campaign with the schools and the communities and resuscitate the pride of the jaguar and the stories and the myths. And people there were really proud, right, of like, we have the jaguar back. He's going to be our hero. And, and I wonder when I look at European society, if we could do the same for the wolf in the same way as we had wolf clans and we had wolf dances and we had these kind of pagan animistic ways of honoring the wolf. And I'm wondering if we could we could do the same in Europe as, as what they did with the jaguar in Latin America. I think the thing is, you look at, if you look at some of the wolf, there are many excuses for not having beavers here. You know, 
people will tell you, who oppose it, will tell you, well, it's the, it's the thin end of the wedge. You start with beavers, you're going to finish with wolves, and therefore you can't even begin with beavers. And there are people who have always picked an answer, and the answer is no, and then they sit in their own in a dark room, or, or maybe they have a few of their wee mates who think the same, who come along to join them, and they come up with the biggest heap of shit you can ever imagine, and then they try and peddle it to people just to make them frightened. And, and one of the stupidest ones I ever heard um, was that, you know, we can't have beavers in this country because the Elizabethans declared them to be vermin uh, and they knew the animal and therefore they knew something we didn't. Now, for anybody, again, who has any interest in history, the Elizabethans were the people who are burning witches at the stake. Their church is, is trying to figure out at lofty church meetings. So there's a lot of fat bishops and, 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 and abbots sitting there slurping pickled cod and, and, and they're trying to figure out these means how you're going to sort of like conduct a dialogue with the tribes of dog-headed people they expected to find in South America when you turn around to them and say, right, I'm going to give you some beads for your country, and they turn back to you and say, woof. Okay, so that's the level of the Elizabethans intellect at points and the idea that we're now going to turn around and say well they knew something we didn't it's just you know it's well it takes a real luminary to come up with that one well folks i hope you enjoyed listening to that quite as much as i did recording it i have a pending visit to derek's 300 acre rewilding farm on the cornwall border so stay tuned for that special episode hopefully coming soon now we transition over to our other guest, Christine Tompkins. The Tompkins name is synonymous with rewilding around the world because of their pioneering model that combined private land purchase with ecotourism businesses, activist media, and regenerative ranches. Chris shares with us just what the word wild means to her, how she transitioned from being a high-rolling businesswoman to living in the Chilean bush, the role that beauty plays in her life, and why macaws need to befriend robots. Here's Christine Tompkins today on LifeWorlds. So Chris, welcome to the show. The title of your TED Talk, which was Let's Make the World Wild Again. I'm really curious to hear from you what you mean when you say wild and what wild means personally to you. And then what does it mean to make the world wild? When you use a term like wild, it's really hard to define it because just as the word implies, wildness can be found anywhere. It's in your mind. It's how you get up in the morning when you look out the window. What are you seeing? That can be in an urban setting, but in our, in our lives, it's a non-urban setting. It's out in very isolated places and uh, feeling that edge where your life depends on your decisions and the circumstances that you're in in the moment, whether it's on a river or it's at many thousands of feet. I like the intensity of what I think is a wild mind and a wild life because I think it makes your life much more complex even day to day, wherever you are. If you start to live as though all life depends on it, on the, on the actions that you take. And I think in my case, very personally, my life really became whole when I started with my husband 30 years ago, trying to restore areas and bring back species that had been 
extirpated in some cases for over a hundred years. So all those things uh, come to mind when I think about the concept of wildness and our necessity as humans not to leave that behind, but in fact, take it with you wherever you are. You could be in Zurich, you could be in on Mount Everest, but we should never lose our connection to that. I'm wondering in some of the places in Chile and Argentina and elsewhere where you've restored these millions of acres of, of lands and national parks, how did your wildness come out more through those interactions? Or what were those moments that you felt that wildness? I think when I first got to Chile in 1993 and Doug flew us in in his small plane into where we would be living for the next 20 years, into a roadless area in the extreme south of Chile, I think that's where I really came to understand that I'll be damned. This is wild. And um, as adventurous as I'd been over the years at Patagonia Company, working and in my non-working hours, I was not prepared (laughs) for the true wildness and isolation of the southern coast of Chile. That was wild. And, And so in the first year or two, you're just adapting and adopting to that isolation. How do you organize yourself? There are no grocery stores. There's no nothing. You have to fly out to get anything that you need. So it's funny, but the the terminology used wild starts from the moment your urban mind is, I'm going to use the word assaulted, which is pejorative, but it's an assault <laughs> that you realize you have to be careful. You can't break your leg out here. Something that would happen to you in the city and you can be rushed to a hospital in these areas where we've been working the last 30 years, you have to be incredibly mindful. These are all small examples of that transition from being an urban person and a businesswoman to working in impenetrable temperate forests in the extreme south of Chile. So Again, the sense of wildness is so multi-layered and circumstantial. And then finally, you really realize you are just among these beings who are out here just evolving as they always have in this case, and you start to identify with it. And it's not that you lose your habits of modernity or urban life, but they fade to the background and you in a way, step in to a world that is not really interested in you. You could be the CEO of Patagonia, but, you know, in the wild, you're just another thing that can be eaten. (laughs) And I really appreciated that. I have come to seek that out, to have that confrontation with the true world in a way that is incredibly humbling and um, I'm really grateful that I've had these two extremes in my life, which very few people have, I think. It's a massive dose of ontological humility almost. That's right. And you know, it does make me think one of the big challenges in the rewilding movement and the restoration movement, especially when you're bringing back certain keystone species or apex predators, it's that human domesticity 
that is not prepared anymore to accept and integrate, I think, these other forms of life around us. And so I don't know if you've seen recently, but they're planning to cull a bunch of wolves in Yellowstone and other parts of the US again. And so it does beg this question of like, how do we prepare a society and I'll see principally a Western society, and it shows up in lots of cultures in lots of ways, to be ready to accept that kind of life again, and to be ready to accept that humility and that understanding that you're never safe. How do we rewild a human civilization that is just so freaking far from that? Well, I think it's the complicated question in every case, especially when you're, as we do, we're working with large carnivores because we're trying to start with keystone species. In some cases, we started with species farther down the food chain. And even those can be complicated, but nothing compared to the work we've done with jaguars, cougars, ocelots. You can't be the one to be releasing jaguars into the wild. It has to be you on the technical side, but it has to be the political leadership. It has to be the kids. It has to be the churches. It has to be everybody on almost every block in every town and village that says, those are our jaguars and we will protect them. So the number one thing is if you're going to rewild, bring back a keystone species, you have to first eradicate, erase the reasons that they went extinct in the first place because you never want to bring them back and then have them go extinct again. And this is, I think, to your point about wolves in the Northwestern Rockies, that issue was never really resolved legally and culturally. And so you have a species like the wolves who have been really successfully reintroduced. And in three states, key states, they're being shot packs at a time because the originating reason they went extinct in the first place has never been improved, at least in that specific region. So there's tremendous amount of work, the socialization of why to bring a species back, the economic benefits of local communities to see that that species comes back. You become involved very deeply for a very long time in terms of local pride. And really, finally, as I mentioned, the economic benefit of having a fully functioning ecosystem, which is the only reason we do this. If you take Ibera National Park, where we are in northeastern Argentina, it's roughly 2 million acres of grassland and island forests. It's a vast wetlands. There are 10 communities around that wetlands and small villages, small towns. And we knew that to reintroduce jaguars, cougars, ocelots, that we had to get those communities enthusiastic about it at first. And for years, the only work we did was to socialize the idea that the rock star of the province has the opportunity to come home. Now, in that case, in Corrientes province, where we work on this project, the Quarantinos have always seen the jaguar as their spiritual representation so that it's been gone since the 1930s, 
though people accepted it, they always mourned the fact that they were gone when their whole sense of self-identity was a jaguar. Eventually, the entire province became champions of bringing these jaguars back. And it took us a long time to get the first jaguars into the breeding center and then an even longer time to actually see them released and out into the wild. So there were years of anticipation to the point where the people in Corrientes were saying, come on, get them released. We want wild jaguars. We don't want domesticated jaguars. But I won't underestimate how long it takes to socialize the return of a large predator. And today we have eight jaguars in the wild, more to be released. And they are the point of pride for the entire province. I mean, that's what's so challenging because this jaguar was maybe part of their cultural heritage and almost the myth of the place. And I think that rewilding is often more challenging when it's maybe a less iconic species or it's that story was so long ago or it's just a few communities that hold it. I think also what your story really exemplifies is you're speaking about the role of beauty. This will be a beautiful landscape. This will be a beautiful culture if we have these creatures back with us. You know, what has been the role of beauty that guided your work and I know also Doug's work? And where does that fit into your projects? Well, I credit Doug with really training my eye and my ear and my sensibilities about beauty. I think all of us who are interested in the arts and even within our companies and so on and in our private lives, you you have a sense of what beauty is. I like it. I don't like it. I like those colors. It's a very superficial sense of what beauty is to you. And really through Doug, I began to understand what it was I was looking at. What does beauty really mean to us? And for me, I would say, I've almost trained myself to think of it looking at something in its absence rather than its presence. And today I look at beauty as something that's whole, that things are working, things are functioning. And sometimes you can't see that. It's almost looking for negative space in a painting. What is absent from this story? And what's the impact of that absence? And it could be a species. It could be really anything. I'm a student of beauty now, and I think I'm 71 years old, and I will study beauty until the day I die. And hopefully after I'm dead, (laughs) then things could get really beautiful. (laughs) I think you don't stop growing, developing your understanding of what beauty is, the sort of perfection in terms of wholeness. I mean, I look at myself sometimes. I look at pictures of my face when Doug was alive. And and I look at pictures of my face after he died. And you can see wholeness on one side and survival on the other side. Maybe somebody else wouldn't see it, but I see it. It's like, a, a in my case, a third or fourth language. And you just chip away at it. When we don't have those places, then then there's no baseline for beauty or there's no baseline for what the emptiness or the belonging is. And so that leads to a question I was thinking about. 
the model that you guys kind of espouse and created, how relevant is it for today when these large swells of landscape are maybe less connected, less present, or are there still enough large lands that can serve as these bastions of, of life? And does the work even look different today? Let's say I pick up the work that you've been doing. How do I do it differently? I think our work has changed tremendously over the years, even how we've looked at what we're doing. When Doug and I got started, we were involved with the activist issues around the world and so on. But on the conservation side, we were really acquiring large tracts of land and donating them as national parks and seeing that that in itself was what we were trying to do, create national parks as we have seen in the United States, where are they perfectly managed? Never. Are they protected? Yes. So it was only about 15 years ago when we started working in areas where there were a tremendous number of species that had gone extinct. And we thought, well, wait a second, what are we doing here? National parks was never the goal. The goal was always wherever we work and before we leave, we leave properly functioning ecosystems. And so I think by and large, that's exactly what we've done. But in in most of our work now, we have to go back in and reintroduce the keystone species that are missing and work with local communities from the very first day, wherever we are. And so we're not in the national park business. What we're in the business of are these fully functioning ecosystems. And that was a sea change for us because it forced us to see all these national parks we created were just a strategy towards something else. They were not an end of themselves. When we do our work, it's all local and regional. We work with the heads of state of the countries we work in, of course, because that's what it takes to do a lot of this. But basically, if your conservation work is going to last into the next 100 years, 150 years, you have to join in the evolution of local and regional communities and economies, because in the absence of their health, You can forget about everything you're trying to protect. One can't separate themselves from those two facts. So it has really changed in our work. We always worked with communities when we first arrived someplace, but now now it's at a much deeper level in in terms of what is their long-term health and, and what are the benefits from having conservation next door to you that will really stabilize these communities. But just the the way that the climate conversation is still about human flourishing, right? And it's still about how can we as human beings get through this bottleneck? And it's like, no, we're only going to get through this bottleneck if we start to connect differently to other forms of life and understand that we're doing it for them and with them as our equals or even as people who we're serving. Right. And so that jump is probably too idealistic for most people to live. And yet I know that through direct experience of the living world and traveling to some you know, wild places or even just hopefully something that's more simple, we can have a human civilization that starts to say, okay, I'm doing this for the trees. I'm doing this for the fungi. I'm doing this for the robins. I'm not just doing this for me. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Is it possible? Absolutely. There's no question. 
you have to decide what kind of world do I want to live in? What side do I want to be on? (laughs) And I think when you talk about climate change, when you talk about the Greta Thunbergs of the world and the kids in the street and so on, the majority of people can't lock into that. They're worried about the things they won't be able to buy and so on. But I think we have to look at pushing forward in parallel. You cannot leave human communities behind because they happen to be living under circumstances, as Sir David Attenborough said at the front end of COP, the very people who are affected by climate change today are those who have no capacity to move out of the way, which is a huge point. You and I can move. Oh, it's getting too hot here. I'll go someplace else. They can't move and they have no voice whatsoever. The fewer assets you have, the smaller the voice. And if you're living in territories around the world that are somewhat isolated, forget it. So we have to talk about climate and the extinction crisis on the human scale and the non-human scale together and throwing it forward to not generations to come, but the very next generation, our grandchildren, your children. It's here. Yeah. And I think it is, you know, this word compassion, because we're never going to affect change, I think, without some degree of empathy and compassion, even for uh, those who we really struggle to to understand. Um, something I, I try and ask guests if, if we can get around to it is, is there any particular species or creature or landscape that has brought you a life lesson? I would say the red-shouldered macaws. It was audacious. I was really not in favor of trying to bring them back because they'd been gone for 150 years. And it was very hard to find individuals at all. They had to come from Europe and all over. And when they arrived, they were fat, didn't know how to fly, didn't know what to eat, didn't know how to crack things open with their beaks. And they were just a shadow of who they actually were. And the team who taught these birds to fly. They didn't know what a threat was. So using puppetry, attacking a macaw puppet and all the macaws sitting up in the cage, screaming and crying because this wild cat is attacking a puppet macaw. And through that, this is months of training. So then they begin, oh, if we see something that looks like this, then we have to fly away. And today they're flying in the wild, they're breeding, they're having chicks in the wild. I think we have 13 of them out now and many more to come. That told me that we are all deeply capable of being self-realized at any moment in your life, whether you're young or you're 85 years old, that those inherent, beautiful instincts that we have as sentient beings never blow out. We always have them. That's a wonderful story. It's like if the macaws can make it back into the landscape, we can too, right? That's right. Puppetry for birds to be reintroduced back. I didn't even know that kind of stuff existed. Yeah. Teaching them what to eat. What are the trees in the forest where they'll be released? What, what are the nuts and fruits they have? You have to go harvest those and teaching them 
how to fly from A to B, but not flying in a straight line. How do you get, move your wings so you can fly through the middle of trees? I mean, this is months and months of training each bird so that they have the chance to be free and realize their lives and and bring that species back. I feel like you should be training the macaws in one part of the land and the next door you should be doing the human training or like, all right, guys, yeah. this is how you make a fire. This is how you make a shelter. Well, I feel like I have been trained. And these two, it's like a movie. I can see these two things happening at once. You know, it's like the human training and the macaw like trying to fly. You know, we have so much video on this. And when you come down, you'll see something, something that is a marvel. It is. Oh my gosh. I, I cannot wait. Christine, thank you for being here. I love the conversation. No, thank you for having me. And I look forward to seeing you in Europe, not too far from here. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for Fresh Life World's episode coming out in just two weeks time. We'll be delving into arguably the most mysterious of all the kingdoms, that of the fungi. As per our tradition on the show, we will end with a fun fact that will bring you into a rather unexpected life world. We're going to imagine life as a beaver. You have two razor-sharp teeth that need to be constantly trimmed on fine wood. Your teeth are bright orange, and your brain has instincts which can map out how entire river systems are molded, redirected, and pooled. You live inside your den with your furry family, and your den is like a little wooded mansion a three-room home, complete with its own personal waterway for safe travel, winterproof larders and concealed entrances, and even a chimney. Not bad, I say. So that's it from me today. I would love to hear from you, and please reach out to me on the website, lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an awesome open-source library ranging from everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list and I'll see you back here soon.